0: And the greater judgment for sexual sin, for instance, if we're going to use that as a, as a, as an example, uh, will fall upon believers. Hmm. So if I, as a believer, commit adultery, my judgment is greater than someone who doesn't know Christ at all, has no light of the gospel inside them, and they commit adultery.
1: Divorce is significant within the church in this day and age. Why is that?
0: Yeah, two things. I think I would say that it is much less in the church. And part of the reason for that is that in the world, there is so much living together, as you've talked about. Mm-hmm. And the the temporary nature of those relationships are not factored into those marriage statistics. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I, I would say that it's actually it's been falsely calculated. But having said that, uh, we still ask the question about divorce and remarriage— Uh, According to Jesus, uh, Matthew 19, and also in the Sermon on the Mount, um, he says uh, that he forbids divorce except for the cause of marital unfaithfulness. So it seemed that Jesus allows for divorce when there is overt adultery— And he views that the marriage has been broken as a result of that. Divorce is then permitted, according to Jesus. So it's usually called the exception clause. And then when you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds one to that, and that— could only be added later because at the time of Jesus, the church has not yet been formed. But now that there are followers of Jesus, and you have individuals who are actually married to non-Christian spouses, the non-Christian spouse says, you know what, the Christian faith is creating a great problem in our marriage because of your faith. I want nothing to do with you. In such a case, Paul says, when the unbelieving spouse leaves—and I think the leaving there has everything in the world to leaving as a result of their faith— let them go, he says. They are no longer bound. They are loosed. Uh, The Greek word luo means that everything that would unite a husband and wife together that binds them and does not allow for anything else to happen is now been unbound. Mm -hmm. So we call those the two exception clauses. And given that the loosing has happened, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if they are loosed, then they must be also free to remarry. And so from my vantage point, when those two exception clauses are in existence, the, uh, the person then is free to find another spouse. Uh,
1: what of those who at one point in their lives, they confess salvation, and then later in their life, for one reason or another, uh, commit suicide?
0: Yeah, I know that um, the question of suicide, historically, um, Augustine— Um, actually believed and taught, and that has found its way through the the teaching of the church that anyone who commits suicide is eternally lost. That's not found in Scripture, Mm -hmm. but Augustine did declare that because he felt that when you committed a sin, that you were to confess that sin, but that would be one sin you could never confess because you took that all the way through to eternity. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. I mean, I, I don't know how many suicides there are in the Bible. King Saul committed suicide. We have, of course, Judas' suicide, and both of those, they commit suicide out of the despair of an unbelieving individual. Uh, they've given up their hope in God. Now, I want to say that sometimes it's not that cut and dried. Uh, there are individuals who, through a, you know, a medical condition, uh, struggle with that. And uh, I do know that I have spoken with uh, women who have had postpartum depression, and I've spoken to one woman who was taking uh, a medication to treat that, and it was actually increasing her depression. And she told me that for the first time in her life, she actually was contemplating taking her own life. Now, I, I think we need to understand that God knows our weaknesses, and we have been talking about the fact that All you need to do is to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. However, we also know that we all have sin and we all have weaknesses and we all err in numerous places. There is no sin that can draw us from Christ. There is none at all if we trust in Him. And so I would say that even to those who have taken their own lives in an act of despair, sometimes in the midst of despair, We have acted in such a way that we have no longer put together our eternal salvation with the individual despair. But Christ's grace is large enough to cover even that. So I'm not arguing that we should be committing suicide. I'm simply saying that there's no evidence in the Bible that suicide cancels out our eternal salvation.
1: So how do we respond to the sin in the world around us? I mean, if we're talking about judgment, maybe more specifically, you know, there's this proliferation of sexual immorality. How do we respond to that as the church, as or even as individual people, followers of Christ?
0: Yeah, I am sometimes of two minds of this thing. I'm remem- remembering what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, uh, where he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, right? God will judge them. In other words, a greater light has been given to those who know Christ. And the greater judgment for sexual sin, for instance, if we're going to use that as a, as a as an example, uh, will fall upon believers. Mm. So, if I, as a believer, commit adultery, my judgment is greater than someone who doesn't know Christ at all, has no light of the gospel inside them, and they commit adultery. And what I sometimes find is that we've made a federal case in the church of judging the uh, the debauchery in the world, and there's lots of it, you know. Uh, uh, and, and yes, it's, it's very concerning. I mean, look at our own kids, or grandkids, and we say, you know, how do we protect them from this, this flood of sexual perversion that's just everywhere around us? But at the same time, if we do not place a standard among the people of God, if we don't demand a greater accountability among us, I think whatever we say to the world will be of, of no effect whatsoever.
1: And right now we want to talk about an issue, John, that's uh, maybe a little bit controversial, um, right. uh, and it, it's relative around the versions of the Bible. And uh, often, not often, but occasionally we'll hear those that say, you know, uh, the King James should be the only version that's used, and every other version uh, is, is less desirable, let's say, than that. But give us your perspective on, uh, on, on the Bible and its versions.
0: Yeah, I I want to say some things that are very basic in relationship to this. So if this is too basic for most people listening, just bear with me. It's very important to say this, however, especially for new believers. The Bible was not written in English. I know that sounds uh, like the most obvious thing that I can say. But the Bible came to us in three different languages. I mean, the first language is Hebrew. Uh, There are a few chapters in our Old Testament that were actually written in Aramaic. uh, A couple of chapters in Daniel, I think one in Zechariah. Uh, And then the New Testament was written to us in Greek. So if we want the Bible the way it's originally been written— Well, you have to read it in those languages. Anything else is a translation, and anyone who's ever spoken more than one language will tell you that there's never a one-to-one correspondence between two languages. So as accurate as a a translation can be, it can never be perfect. So whatever we say of our translations, they will not be inerrant as the original was. Second thing I want to say, so that'll help in terms of what we're talking about. So to argue for a perfect King James is just not possible. Um, Having said that, I want to say that the King James is an excellent Bible translation, but there's more to say. Uh, The second thing that I want to say is that we don't actually have the original documents, but we have hundreds and thousands of manuscripts that give us a very accurate picture of what the original was. When the King James was uh, was translated in the year was 1611, they used something called the Textus Receptus. And someone's going to say, where is that Textus Receptus? And there is no such document. We know there was a man by the name of Erasmus who was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He took the best documents that he had available to them to him, and there were only six manuscripts, and none of them contained the entire Bible. But he rather pieced them together, and in his own words, he looked forward to a day in which we would have better and more manuscript evidence than he had. Mm -hmm. So in 1611, I think that the translators of the King James Version did a masterful job of bringing the Bible into a contemporary language in the English-speaking world. Again, let me say that wasn't in the German-speaking world, the Spanish-speaking world, the Swahili-speaking world. I mean, all the different languages of the world, but it was one for the English-speaking world, and it was a good job. Uh, Since that point in time, uh, more manuscripts have been found, thousands more, and many of them much earlier than that which is available to Erasmus. And anyone who's interested in an inerrant Bible wants the best manuscripts that they can find. And so that's what we find. So many of our listeners will know that I commonly will preach out of the ESV. I think it follows in the King James Version tradition, um, but it, it also is not a perfect translation. Um, I like the best of all translations available in the English language for its literalism. I like the NASB, or the New American Standard Bible. Uh, It is as best as we can find for a word-for-word translation. Uh, However, it's written at about a grade 11 level, and for that reason, I like the ESV, which is written at about a grade 9 level, which makes it a little bit easier uh, for individuals to understand. Um, So I'm going to argue that there are a great many good translations, and I'm thankful for the King James. I would want to also say with deference that there's no reason to believe that the King James is the standard for all time. The standard are the original documents that were written.
1: We hope you're enjoying the new Truth and Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode each week. But we want you to be involved in the show. To submit your own personal questions to Dr. John, you can email us at info@backtothebible.ca at or find us on Facebook by searching Truth and Life Today.